Hey, Paul, good morning. Boy, it really empties out when the kids leave, doesn't it? Uh, I know the adults are like, ah, oh, spread out. Uh, but good morning. It's so good to have you here at Morning Hour Chapel. Uh, there's one more announcement that I wanted to make um, that we'll announce a couple of times between now and uh, the event. But um, we are going to be holding a membership class um, in uh, late October and early November, so October 30th, or November the, I think it's the 6th, whatever that first Sunday in, in November is. Uh, you would only need to attend one or the other, uh, but if you're interested, we want you to sign up. Um, you can let us know when uh, you're gonna be able to attend, but uh, there are some things that I wanna send to you ahead of time, things that uh, we'll want you to read, uh, some things to fill out, some information, um, and if you are interested in possibly becoming a member of Morning Hour Chapel, uh, come see me after service today, uh, or you can email me at pastorjoe at morninghourchapel.org, uh, and we will uh, get some information out to you. Um, but this morning, we are going to continue on our journey through the 10 core values of the Brethren in Christ Church. This might help some of you who might be considering uh, becoming members of the church to know a little bit about uh, the Brethren in Christ. And over the last couple of weeks, we talked about the first two values, the first one being experiencing God's love and grace. And of course, if we don't experience God's love, his grace, his forgiveness, uh, none of the other core values is going to make much sense to us. But we experience God's love, his grace, when we come to understand that we are sinners in need of that grace, in need of that love, and we ask God to forgive us for our sins. And when we do that, we become new creations, new people. Our spirits come alive. And last week we talked about um, believing the Bible, not just reading it, though reading it is going to be very important to believing it but actually believing the Bible and reading it with the help of the Holy Spirit who will guide you, who will teach you uh, the things that God is revealing about himself through Scripture. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at that third core value, uh, worshiping God. Some of you, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've had these uh, flyers in our bulletins. Um, if you did not get one, if you were not here, some of these are still out on the table in the vestibule and you can pick one of these up, but this is kind of our guide for going through our 10 core values this fall. So according to the core values of the Brethren in Christ Church, we value heartfelt worship that is God-honoring, spirit-directed, and life-changing. And when we think about worship, a lot of Christians, when we, when we think worship, what's the first thing we think of? Music, right? We even call it worship music. It's that time when we get together and we sing songs. We have a whole entire book of the Bible that's full of nothing but songs. Uh, we call it the book of Psalms. And uh, it gives us uh, just kind of this, this framework for how we worship God. And in Psalm 100, uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles or open your Bible apps, if some of you are uh, Bible app people, 
Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 100, uh, verses 1 through 5. We're going to read that very briefly. So Psalm 100, it's right there in the middle of the Bible, in the Old Testament. Psalms has 150 uh, different passages. We're going to look at one, Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And we read this passage, we read this scripture, and I couldn't help but think of, of poets who have talked about music. And uh, the one poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, some of you have heard of him, uh, he wrote that music is the universal language of mankind. And across societies, across just all people groups, music is associated with certain behaviors. For example, if you're a parent, you have probably sung at least one lullaby to your child. And that's not something that we just do here in Western cultures. Every culture has lullabies, these things that uh, parents sing to calm their children. We use these calming melodies, right, in these lullabies. But then we have kind of the opposite end of that calming music. We have dance music. And I know we're brethren in Christ, we don't dance. But, but we do. And dance music is similar across all societies. It doesn't necessarily sound the same. There are different instruments that, were, that are used and different varieties of music. But when we hear a dance music from another culture, we are almost certain to know that it is dance music. And whether you're dancing a waltz in a, in a ballroom floor or you're dancing a polka, my father loved polkas because he was Polish and he loved, he loved singing and he would, he would dance around the house. And we knew that this was dance music. But even if you're bouncing off of other people in a mosh pit, and of course, none of us has ever seen the mosh pit before because we're brethren in Christ. But if, you are <laughs> if you're bouncing along and, and just kind of dancing, we know that this is dance music and it is written almost universally with the intention of getting us to move, right? Even aerobics music. Some of us from the 70s and 80s remember aerobics music. And we use that music to get us to, to move around. And it makes it a little more fun to exercise, at least more fun than running. But we have all of these different kinds of music. And it's no wonder then that the psalmist calls us to use song as a way to enter God's presence. This is a universal thing that we can do as human beings to enter God's presence with song. And if we read that passage, Psalm 100, we see that one of the key things about this 
entering God's presence in song is that we can know the Lord, that He is God. And here at Morning Hour Chapel, we sing music, right? We sing hymns. We just had some beautiful hymns accompanied by a single instrument, the organ. And when the Brethren in Christ started, there was no organ. There was no instrument. There was no nothing. They sang a cappella. How many of you would like to sing a cappella in our church? No, because the music covers up our voices, right? And, and maybe people won't notice how badly we sing. But back when the Brethren in Christ was founded in 1778, we sang a cappella. And the first time that an organ was used in the church from 1778, we have to go all the way to the early 1900s before the Brethren in Christ started allowing musical instruments in church. And they didn't allow them because they thought musical instruments, they, weren't, they didn't think they were of the devil, which is what a lot of people would say. No, they just thought that playing a musical instrument brought glory to the instrumentalist, as opposed to bringing glory to God. So for a long time, they thought only our voices could bring glory to God. And of course, they learned that that is not necessarily the case. So today, we also add contemporary music. And it's played with guitars and keyboards, sometimes the drums. Uh, every once in a while, we get uh, Renee on the tambourine uh, as we're singing our worship music. And worship is often used synonymously with worship music. That's what we usually think about when we think of worship. Let's enter into worship and we start to sing. But music is not all that worship is. In the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, worship is defined as to show honor or reverence for a divine being or supernatural power. That's the first definition. The second definition is simply to regard with great extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. And the word worship actually comes from an old English word. And that old English word translates into this, uh, this compound word, worth-ship. And we get this idea that worship is openly acknowledging the worth of something. And as human beings, we were, we were created to worship. We were created to worship God, to openly acknowledge His majesty, to show His worth, to show extravagant respect and honor and devotion to him. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they worshiped God because they knew God as their creator. They knew God as their sustainer. They could see all around them. God had given them every tree in the garden for food. And he came to them. We see in, uh, in chapter uh, 3 of Genesis that God walked in the garden in the midst of the people, Adam and Eve. So we know that they worshipped him. Psalm 95, 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. They knew God as their creator. They knew God's care and their love and his love for them. And they worshipped him until the serpent showed up. In Genesis 3, we read about the serpent offering Eve this enticing temptation to be like God. 
The serpent says, you will not certainly die. God knows that when you eat this one fruit that he has told you not to eat, that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And he made this temptation. You can be like God. How many of us would want to be like God? Except he didn't really explain what that fully meant. One of the many things that the serpent wanted humanity to do through this temptation was to assign worth not to God, but to ourselves. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted, to he wanted us to believe that God was not worthy of this worship. That we instead were worthy of extravagant respect and honor and devotion. And he tells this, this lie, except that it's not really a lie. It's a half-truth. Because the thing is, God had already assigned humanity great worth. King David in Psalm 8 tells us this through his, his worship. He starts out praising God's majesty and telling God how great he is and how glorious he is. And then in Psalm 8, 3 and 4, he asks God a question. And you might have heard this question before. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? This blew David's mind. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you about going to the Grand Canyon and seeing the just millions upon millions of stars over this, over this great chasm. And it was glorious. It was majestic. And how many of us and how many people in the world, whether they know God or not, say things like, well, we must be pretty insignificant compared to the whole universe. How small do I feel when I look at the moon and the stars and when I think of all of the things that are out there that I can't even see? And David asks the same question. What is man compared to all of these things? Father, you are so far beyond humanity and worth. You are majestic. You are glorious. You are the creator. And when I look at all these things, I can't help but wonder why you even care about me. But David doesn't wait for an answer though because he knows the answer. And he continues in verse 5, you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. When God created us, he created us with great worth. We were worth everything to him. And the serpent wasn't trying to just transfer the worth of God onto humans. He was trying to tell humans that they were the only things, people, creation, that were worth anything, that were worthy of worship. He tempted Eve so that if she ate the fruit that God told her not to eat, 
humanity would see God as less. And they would see themselves as more. And it worked. Eve took the fruit. She gave it to Adam. He ate the fruit. The lie was complete. The temptation was complete. And Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us, saw their nakedness and were ashamed of it. Think about what that means. Adam and Eve were ashamed of what God had created. This is what they were ashamed of. This was the first time that humanity questioned God. This is the first time that they said, God, what are you doing? You put us down here. We don't have any clothes. We got to go make clothes for ourselves because we, we just can't, we can't walk around like this. That was the very first result of humanity deciding that it was worth more than God, that it knew better than God. They covered up God's so-called mistake because now we know. God doesn't know. We know. And it was at that time that humanity started worshiping itself. Social psychologists talk of something called hero worship. Anybody ever heard of hero worship before? This is where we put people on pedestals, often believing that they are vastly superior to everybody else. Sometimes we even think they're perfect. There is nothing in them that is wrong. And there was an article published in 2015 in the Journal for the Theory of Social Behavior, and the article was called Hero Worship, the Elevation of the Human Spirit. That was the title of the, of the article. This was 2015. And the article is quoted as saying that heroes fulfill important cognitive and emotional needs, including the need for wisdom, meaning, hope, inspiration, and growth. That's what hero worship does according to this article. We were crowned with glory and honor by God, our Creator Himself. And now we shuffle along in our lives seeking the praise of others. We, we just walk around giving praise to other people or other things. We're worshiping. And we're not necessarily getting on our knees and bowing down and doing this kind of thing. But we're worshiping people. We're worshiping things. Why? Because that's how we were created. We were created to worship. And if we're not going to worship God, we're going to worship something or somebody else. It's how we were made. Humanity is looking for wisdom and meaning and hope and inspiration and growth and it's looking for it in all the wrong places. And when we accept God's free gift of grace and salvation, 
what we're saying is we are not worthy of anything. Our sin has made us dead. We're not worthy of anything. But when we start on our journey with Jesus Christ, after we have asked God to forgive us of our sins, our worship does not need to focus on ourselves. Our worship does not need to focus on other people or other things, and it shouldn't focus on other people and other things. All of our worship should be focused on God. We should be showing God how much we think he is worth. And guess what? God is eternal. There is not any way for a mortal human being to express to God how much he is worth. It would take us the rest of our lives until we die, and we wouldn't even have been started yet. But how do we show God that we see his worth? In the words of the song, how do we say thanks for all the things you have done for me? Things so undeserved, and yet you gave to prove your love for me. That song is talking about Jesus Christ. And we look back at the BIC core value. Our worship is to be God-honoring. It's to be spirit-led. It's to be life-changing. How do we do that? How do we show God his worth or show him that we understand his worth? We don't, need to we don't need to show God his worth. He knows what he's worth. But how do we show God that we understand his worth? What do these things look like for Christians? I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. That one's in the New Testament, about halfway through the New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's the 12th book of the New Testament. Colossians was written to a church in Colossae. And it was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is talking to the Colossians in chapter 3 about how God wants them to live so that we show that we understand God's worth. So we're in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. That's the church. That's what we're called to to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There's one of those things that we're looking for 
in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God is everything that we are looking for. Wisdom, meaning, hope, inspiration, growth, all of those things we can experience when we do the things that Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 3. We honor God when we have compassionate hearts. We honor God when we practice kindness and humility and meekness and patience and when we put up with one another and we forgive one another. We honor God. And these things honor God because they are the attributes of God. And we see those attributes through His Son, Jesus Christ, when He came to live on earth. He, Jesus told us He is showing us the Father. He is showing us who the Father is. And it was Jesus' nature to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble, to be meek, to be patient. We often read in the Gospels where Jesus would encounter these large crowds and he would look at them. And we would read he had compassion on them. And he would sit with them. He would heal them. He would teach them. Sometimes he would feed them because of his compassion. We see Jesus practicing patience quite often in his dealings, not only with the Pharisees, but with his own disciples when they just weren't getting something. And Jesus would sit down with his disciples after he'd sent all of the crowds home, and he would patiently explain what it is that he was trying to tell the crowds so that they would know who God is. So they would know what God wants He's telling them the nature of God. And we get to read those things. If we read our Bibles, we get to see what Jesus has to say about who God is. And then we see Jesus' meekness and humility on the night that he was betrayed by his friend. Jesus didn't stand up and try to defend himself. The only thing Jesus said was, you've called me the Son of God. You're right. He didn't say much else. The Bible tells us that like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus didn't open his mouth. He acted in humility and he did the will of God the Father, even though he didn't want to. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. That is the ultimate in humility before God. And Jesus showed us how to do that.
We talk about this idea of God's love, and we are, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And we're commanded to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And Jesus told us that our neighbors are everybody, including our enemies. We're to love our enemies the way we love ourselves. And when we do that, when we truly and honestly love God and our neighbors, we are honoring God. We are doing His will and we are saying, God, you are worthy. You're worthy of everything I am. You're worthy of everything I have. You're worthy of my obedience to you. This is what true worship is. True worship is saying to God, I am yours. Do with me as you will. That's worship. The end of that passage says, whatever we do in word or in deed, do in the name of Jesus Christ. How many of us, myself included, do things that Jesus would not be happy to have had done in his name? Whatever we do in word, or indeed, we are to do it as if we were representing Jesus Christ himself, because we are. The Bible calls us ambassadors of Jesus Christ. An ambassador is somebody who represents a country or a kingdom. We represent the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. How often do I embarrass Jesus Christ with my words or with my deeds? These are things that God doesn't want us to do. If we can keep this truth in mind, if we can keep in mind that we're doing everything and saying everything in the name of Jesus Christ, how many manner of sins what might we avoid? How many manner of temptations might we destroy? If we keep in mind that one simple truth that everything we do as followers of Jesus Christ is in the name of Jesus Christ, whether it's to His approval or not. You know the world looks to us. You know the world is looking at us. And you know the world is looking for any excuse to tell us that we're wrong, to tell us that we're hypocrites, to tell us that God is not worth anything. Just look at his people. And this is what we're called to. We are called to act in the name of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we start to change our inner being, our worship can be spirit-led. Because Jesus said in John 4, 23-24, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. When a person comes to know that they are a sinner and they become forgiven by God, when they become followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into them. And they become what Jesus calls born again. And this is a very unpopular phrase in a lot of churches now, born again. But it's what Jesus calls us. In John 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's one of the people that Jesus usually talks really not nicely about in most of the Gospels. But here's Nicodemus looking for some truth. Here's Nicodemus asking Jesus, well, what do your words mean? What are you telling these people? And Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when Nicodemus asks him what that means, Jesus replies, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And we are all born of flesh. Feel. Pinch yourself. You are born of flesh. You are born of water. The second birth, the birth that comes when we ask God's forgiveness and he forgives us through his grace, that is being born again. It's literally a spiritual birth. When we're born physically, we are born without the spirit of God in us. We are born without the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And that's the truth. It is only after we accept God's grace and his forgiveness that the Holy Spirit enters into us and our spirit is born. And when we heed the instruction and the leading of the Holy Spirit and what we say and what we do when we read the Bible, when we worship God, when we gather together as believers, the Holy Spirit is there to teach us and to guide us and to show us what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to say. And when we do those things, when we actually obey the Holy Spirit, we live lives that are pleasing to God. And we demonstrate that God is worthy of our whole lives. The last thing that this uh, core value says is that our worship should be life-changing. And it is life-changing. Our worship spiritually is life-changing. But it also means that our outward lives, that our physical lives should be changed as well. Like we said, everything we say, everything we do should be God-honoring. It should be obedience to the Holy Spirit. In Romans 12.1, Paul writes to the church, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Prophet Isaiah saw a vision of God. We read about in Isaiah chapter 6, we're not going to read the whole thing, but in verse 5, when Isaiah has seen God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
He's seeing this vision, and Isaiah is focused on this part of his body, his unclean lips, these things that have spoken things that are not pleasing to God. And in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God forgave Isaiah for his unclean lips, just like God forgives us. Isaiah's sins were atoned for just like the saving act of Jesus Christ on the cross atones for our sins. When we truly encounter God in worship, it will be life-changing. We will find ourselves willing to do things we'd never thought that we would do before. When God tells us that he is wanting us to do something, we're going to want to do it. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, right after his lips have been, uh, have, have been forgiven, have been cleaned, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. And God made Isaiah his prophet. He sent Isaiah to the people of Israel. When we experience true worship, we are going to be willing to say, here I am. Send me. Let me go where you want me to go. And where does God want us to go? He wants us to go everywhere. He might send us back to work with a heart that aches for those co-workers who don't know Jesus Christ, even the annoying one that takes all the coffee. He might send us back to school with a great desire to share the gospel with our friends who are hurting. Our friends who have never heard the name of God before. He might be sending us there. Or he might send us far, far away to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to a people who has never heard the name of God before, ever. And we know that there are millions who have never heard the name of God. Church, our worship does not start and end here on a Sunday morning. Our worship started as soon as we accepted God's free gift of salvation. And our worship is supposed to continue continuously until we die and we meet God face to face and we enter his gates with thanksgiving and we enter his presence with song. This is what we are called to. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that every knee shall bow and every tongue sh shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're going to bow before God. We're going to worship Him as God. 
should be doing that now. Every day. Every minute. Everything that we do with our bodies. Everything we say with our mouths. Should be worship to God. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Are we that people? Are we ready for our lives to be worship? To show God that we understand His worth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the rain. We thank you for the cooler weather. And we thank you that you created all of those things and that you give us all of those things so that we might live. Father, we can never know until we see you face to face the, the length and the breadth and the depth of your glory, the immenseness of your worth, but Father, let us, in word and in deed, show you that we understand that you are worthy. That you are worthy of praise, that you are worthy of worship, that you are worthy of our love. And Father, help us to love you with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole body. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to show them who you are through our lives. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 reads this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And in Revelation, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. This is what it's going to look like on that last day. We're going to be worshiping. We're going to be praising God. Let us start now. God bless you this week.